0: Grab your Bibles, turn to Luke 15. Luke 15, we are uh, working our way through the parables, of course. Uh, For the most part, Matthew on Sunday mornings, Luke on Sunday evenings. And uh, we find ourselves in looking at three parables. We'll look at, Lord willing, the first two this morning, and the third one uh, being the the longer one uh, next week. And I I trust that we are familiar with them. Uh, Often, uh, these first two are overlooked in favor of the, the, the third, the parable of the two sons. We're often called the parable of the prodigal son, but there's really two boys there that are involved. And we often overlook these two sort of as uh, pref- prefaces. Uh, and that, that is unfortunate. There's a lot here. So with that, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Verse 1. Chapter 15, Evangelist Luke writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. We have lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Go, Lord, in. prayer. Our Father, we ask as always that You would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, uh, that we would receive Your Word, apply it to our lives, be transformed by the power of the Gospel. But Lord, this is Your work, and we ask that You would do it. Let us possess the joy of God. May I decrease so that You can increase. Name Your Son. We pray. Amen. May you be seated. When my wife and I first got married, uh, we were living in. Uh, the metropolis of Louisville, and I was a youth pastor in Ointon It's about an hour and a half drive. And so every weekend we would drive that hour and a half. And when we got married, uh, one weekend we'd stay at her parents, next weekend we'd stay at my parents, and we'd go back and forth. And And we'd usually grab something to eat on the way in. Uh, she usually worked on Saturdays as a photographer, so we usually got in late on Saturdays and, and whatnot. And, and, uh, but on this one particular occasion, I called my, my parents in advance and said, you know, Mom, Dad, we, we're wanting to save some money. Would you care if we had dinner at your house? And of course, they're, they're not against that. And said, well, we'll fix a big dinner. Come on over and, and we'll, we'll eat together. Little did they know, uh, the reason we did this is because my wife and I had had announcement. And if I remember right, uh, we, we, had, we had got a gift, or she had got a gift, let's be honest. Uh, she had gotten a gift, and after dinner, uh, presented it to my mother, and uh, she understood the interpretation my wife and I were pregnant with our first child. Uh, and all of a sudden, my mother turned into a grandmother. You know, that, that, that is a different creature. Uh, that is a different animal whatsoever. Some of you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, I no longer recognized my parents. Uh, whoever they were, they are no longer. It was like a, a butterfly, right? They were once ugly caterpillars who, who would abuse their children if they got out of line. Now they were grandparents who can't imagine certain children ever doing anything wrong. Um, but I, I do remember my mother particularly went absolutely crazy. Once, once she, she you know, got certainty from us that we are not joking, my wife really is pregnant. She's going to be a grandmother. She, she just ran around the house like crazy. I remember she, she, she asked the question that my wife asked when I asked her to marry me. Who do I call first? Right? I, don't, I don't get this at all. You can call whoever you want whenever we leave, right? Right now, you know, so so she, she calls all of her uh, uh, friends, you know, peers, and, and to brag she's a grandmother before they're a grandmother, you know, all, all, all that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, I, I heard, uh, I don't know if it was my parents or someone else later, they're talking about reflecting on life as a grandparent. And they said something like, if I knew being a grandparent would be this great, we would have skipped having kids, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I found that hilarious and give science... Time, I'm sure they'll figure out a way to do that. Um, well, I think it's clear that perhaps nothing reveals uh, what we care about most than that which makes us rejoice the most. That which brings us the greatest joy is a reflection of the things we value the most. And to anyone that, that is in family and close-knit family, certainly the gift of life and love is something worth Rejoicing, And what this passage is asking us to consider is, what is the source of our joy? And I hope the answer to that question for you has nothing to do with the state of our nation or the election of our leaders or the success of our favorite sports team or the direction of our careers or anything like that. Surely there is something better than that. What is the source of our joy? I don't know if you've ever really considered uh, the joy of God very much. I think this is something we neglect in our theology. That God is a God of joy. And the Bible is full of instances of God rejoicing and God expressing joy. I want to give you just a few examples in between the two testaments. The first is, For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law. Right? He will delight in in blessing you. Or consider the, the striking imagery of Isaiah 62. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons um, marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Notice what what what, what the prophet does there. He's, he takes the occasion of a wedding where everybody is happy. For the most part, we all have those family members that our spouse wish we didn't invite. But beyond that, everyone is happy at the wedding, and as as a groom rejoices over his bride. I've told you before, the only time someone cares about the groom at a wedding is when the bride first shows up. Right? They, 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 they. They marvel at the beauty of the bride. They briefly turn to the groom to see if he's crying. And whether or not he is, they go right back to the bride. That brief two-second moment is the only time people care about the groom. Right? But we want to see the joy of that groom. And what does I say as saying here? That God rejoices like a groom over his bride. Jeremiah 32 says, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart, with all my soul. Notice there, God is rejoicing over doing good with the people of Israel. Zephaniah chapter 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. It's incredible. It isn't that, that God will rejoice, but that God will be very loud in his rejoicing. Do you have anyone in your life that has that laugh that you wish you could turn down a little bit? That is God here. God, God will exalt in his joy over his people. Consider what Paul says here in Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Notice the connection there between righteous peace and joy with the Holy Spirit, which means apart from the Holy Spirit in his kingdom, there is no righteousness, peace, or joy. Or we can look at something more simple. That is the fruit of the Spirit. Notice again that it is the Spirit that, that gives love. It is the Spirit that gives joy and peace and patience and, and everything else. So, so the, the, the Spirit must possess these things in order to give these things. Thus we can conclude that God is a God joy. Thus, in a nutshell, the primary purpose of these parables is to illustrate that very point. Don't don't, don't miss that. At its core, these three parables want us to see that God is a God of joy. Just look at the evidence there that the central verse is not in the the prodigal son. The central verse is in verse 7 with the sheep. Does it say there, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And notice how this is backed up in all three narratives. In verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. And, and he, what does he do? He says, rejoice with me. The woman in verse 9, when she finds the coin, she, she calls together her, her lady friends, we'll see later, her girlfriends, and, and, and says, rejoice with me. For I found the coin that I had lost. Or where the father, verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate, to be glad, for this your brother was dead and alive. He was lost and is found. This is consistent throughout. The point is, what is the source of of our joy? And for Jesus is arguing, he rejoices over new citizens of the kingdom of God. Let us start with the setup of these two parables in verses 1 and 2. No doubt anyone familiar with the Gospels will find the language here very familiar. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now this is a common criticism of Jesus. That he would befriend the sort of people that the conservative religious folk in town did not pre-approve of. Does that bother you a little bit? That you have to get pre-approval on who to hang out with from the religious folk? This is the complaint here. Now, we need to note here that religion always ties one's righteousness to outward ritual and personal relationships. So in this case, we see that to associate yourself with a harlot is to, therefore, to approve of harlotry. To associate yourself with a tax collector makes you, of course, a big government liberal, right? So, so, so to associate yourself, to, to, to have a relationship with, to, to have a conversation with, is to, therefore, to buy into that ideology and lifestyle, and yet— Jesus welcomes such people to himself. He he is as if he seeks them out. And is it any wonder why? In Mark chapter 2, we, we read, it says, When Jesus heard it, he said to those, Those who are well have no need of physician, just those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now, now don't misunderstand Jesus. Either here in Mark 2 or in Luke 15, he's not saying to the Pharisees, Y'all are well. But I'm getting to an age that my stubbornness is getting to the point, and I see it in my father, the way, to where he will argue uh, hurt and sickness does not mean he's not sick. and Therefore, he doesn't need a doctor. Uh, do you have anyone stubborn like this in your life? You'll say, oh, your back's hurting. You can barely walk. You can't function as a human being. If only there were trained professionals who can look into physical ailments. If only there were people, oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Walk it off. Right? Ain't nothing the little buttermilk couldn't fix, right? You know, rub some dirt on it, you'll be fine. You know people like this. Maybe you're one of the, them There people, right? You see, you have to know and willing to confess you need a doctor. So it isn't the so-called well who need a doctor. It's those who know that they are sick. That's the point Jesus is making. He's saying here, everyone is sick. These people are willing to go to the great physician. But you are not willing to go. Jesus treats the tax collectors and sinners as fellow image bearers He loved them and He listened to them. Now naturally, whenever God is at work, religious people throw a hissy fit, right? If you knows, I grew up in a somewhat fundamentalist background, um, that whenever God does something good, religious people will, will complain. Associating with sinners, they would argue, makes you a sinner. This is the nature of black and white religion. Let me just add a footnote there. This is why wokeness in America is itself a type of religion. It's very black and white. You're either this or you're that. There is no nuance. There is anything in, in, in between. Because it's driven by a religious impulse. A more biblical term would be idolatry. Regardless, the, the context of these three parables address this criticism. Why would Jesus associate himself with with such riffraff of society. And, and what we need to see here isn't that Jesus is associating with them, he is rejoicing with them. All the Pharisees can see and will ever see is that they are and will forever be tax collectors and sinners. Again, this is what religion does. Religion says once you commit a sin, once you do something evil, you are forever that sin. Again, I can prove this from woke religion. You are your past. You are your regrettable tweets. You are whatever it is that you were condemned for. You will always be condemned for. There is no grace or forgiveness in religion. That is a Christian idea, frankly. And so we live in a society that will cancel you, but will not bring redemption. But nevertheless, the the, the central question of this passage is straightforward. What is the source of your joy? For Christ, it is seen in sinners repenting. It is seen in the work of the gospel. So not only is it what is the source of your joy, but what is the source of your ire? Christ rejoices on the inside with the sinners. The Pharisees condemn from the outside against the sinners. From there, we, we, we get the stories, right? And they follow the same pattern. They're obviously connected with, with each other, and the parallels are there. Well, let us start in verses 3 through 7 with the lost sheep. Now, each of these three, three parables follow the same general sequence. Now, now the prodigal son will, will add... Um, a sequence to it but for the most part this is the sequence that we are going to find first something is lost then someone seeks it they discover it and then they rejoice over it this is the same pattern you'll you'll find in in the first three and then with with the uh second son It, it it still follows it but it's slightly different we'll look at it next week let us start with the shepherd here what what it is that he loses it's it's there in verse three um what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now obviously if you know your Bible you know that shepherding was a common vocation at this time. Sheep were everywhere requiring shepherds to watch them. This is an agricultural society. Uh, The use of shepherds that Jesus uses here is actually quite striking. Not one that we would expect. Shepherds, contrary to what we may think today, were not Cute professions, you know, we, we, we decorate our house with shepherds. Uh, the early church, one of their favorite symbols of Christianity was a shepherd with, with the sheep over his shoulders, taken from this passage. Uh, we, we see them as uh, porcelain saints to, to put on a, on a shelf or something like that. That is not the case in the time of Jesus. To the Jewish mind, shepherds were among the lowest of the low. One of the reasons is because their profession kept them from going to synagogue or temple. They couldn't do it. They, they, they had a 24-hour job. They sat out there with sheep. The only people they got to talk to were sheep, right? And, uh, well, I'm sure there's a joke there that I will keep to myself. But, but they, 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 were, they were lowest of lows, not for religious reasons, but for class reasons. They're poor. Um, you're not going to make a whole lot of money watching sheep and shearing sheep and taking care of sheep. But it isn't just as for religious and class reasons, but for character reasons. They, they fit a stereotype. Uh, shepherds were rough folk. Whenever I was growing up, we didn't say a phrase like cussing like a sailor. My dad's a mechanic. He was around mechanics. We said cussing like a mechanic. So mom and dad were always, particularly my mother, let me say, my mother was always worried about us being influenced too much by mechanics. Why? Because their language was more colorful than, than what was approved in, in our house, right? So, the way shepherds were. They fit a stereotype. They were considered uh, low-lives, dishonest, dirty people. And this is what makes the prevalence of shepherding so, so striking in the Bible. Think about how many of the major characters in the Bible are shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. And then you can look at David. You can look at Moses. There's plenty of shepherds throughout that that are heroes. Or consider what it is David said when he's trying to come up with a beautiful metaphor for God. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Although they were a lower class of people, David lifts the the, the, the profession up to use it as a metaphor for God himself. Now, most, most surprising is that the angels went to the shepherds to announce the birth and the arrival of the Messiah. And what a contrast that is. Angels who, who, who stand in the presence of God. Shepherds watching their sheep out, out at night. What a striking comparison. But shepherds essentially had one job. They had one job. Don't lose any sheep. That was it. Don't lose the sheep. Whatever you do, don't lose sheep. If you're on Twitter all day while watching the sheep, fine. Don't lose sheep. Right? If you're checking the score watching a live game, that's fine, don't lose any sheep. If you're posting ugly memes about, about the guy who was elected or, or defeated in the last election, that's fine, don't lose any sheep. Don't lose sheep. Now remember, the average family, let's just say middle class family, not really language they, they were familiar with then, that's really a modern idea, would have likely no more than 15 sheep. Lower class obviously would, would have significantly less. So what you likely have here is a fold of sheep from several families. Uh, your, your Richard probably didn't have much more than 100 or 200 sheep. So this is likely several families. And so what they do is is they pull uh, the resources together. There are several shepherds involved, and together they watch these, these 100 sheep. And that explains why the shepherd can leave the 99 and then go pursue the 1. And this is a strength in, in numbers. So, so this means that, that, that the shepherd is to never lose sheep. If they wander off, it is imperative that the shepherd tracks them down. No wonder then that this shepherd entrusts his sheep, the other sheep, with with the other shepherds. It is imperative he doesn't lose that sheep. He may discover that this sheep has died, but that is not as bad as not discovering the sheep at all. You have to find the sheep. You cannot lose them. Now, notice the way Jesus puts this is he, he, he doesn't say, let me tell you a story about a shepherd. Rather, he puts it in the form of a question. Which one of you, if you were a shepherd, imagine in that profession, if a sheep were to wander off, which one of you wouldn't pursue that one lost sheep? Of course, the answer is obvious because they have one job. You get that sheep. Now, remember, the Pharisees are, are think of them as bivocational. Virtually all of them have work outside of Jerusalem. Some may be farmers in the agricultural world, some may be carpenters or something else. So many of them probably owned sheep. and they understood, if I hire a shepherd to, to watch my sheep, he has one job: Do not lose my sheep. And here we have a guy who's lost his sheep. So he says, "Which one of you would go and pursue that one sheep? Sheep provided everything for families. Food, warmth, wealth, and a host of other things. And imagine if, if not that you have 15 sheep. Imagine if you're a family with only two sheep. Losing the one is is a very serious issue. I ever tell you what my very first pastoral ethical dilemma I was I was ever asked it was by a farmer. He said, "Preacher, I want to know your opinion about something. It is illegal to shoot buzzards, right? Uh, the, the the state needs buzzards because we have roads." Okay, you can figure out the rest. So the state needs buzzards. You can't just go shoot buzzards. But what if, this is the question, what if you're, you you got a cow that's about to give birth? You know what happens? The buzzards start to show up. Why? They're hoping that they will stir up the other cattle, thus stomping out the new calf, and now they've got dinner. So Farmer asks, Preacher, is it okay if I break the law to shoot the buzzards? Right. How about that for an ethical dilemma, right, when you start out ministry? Of all the things they, they, they train you for in cemetery, they don't, they don't prepare you for that. But why is that such a serious question? In that single calf is the livelihood of that farmer. The day will come, he's going to sell that calf. The day will come, that calf will have another calf. And so on and so forth. So the lose of sheep is, is quite significant. So the loss leads to the seeking, verses 3 and 4. And of course, again, he's going to look for his last sheep. And remember that sheep estranged are in great danger. They cannot protect themselves. They are easily lost, and they cannot find their way back. And one of the things I've discovered, many of you all know, we, we had a, a beagle toto recently for, for 12 years, something like that. And he liked to get loose. Doesn't matter what we did, he was going to find his way out. And one of the frustrating things about that beagle is the only thing he knew was, follow your nose. He had no other plan in life but follow, follow your nose. And so if you took him walking, I learned that if you walked down the middle of the street, which I don't recommend you ever doing, but if you walked down the middle of the street, he would do this thing. He'd follow his nose, but you were too far away from the good stuff for him to really pick up a good scent, especially as he aged. If you walked on the side of the street, he's pulling you into everyone's yard. He doesn't want to go straight. He wants to go tree. He wants to go other animal. He wants to go front porch, right? All he could do was follow his nose. Because well, I mean, as a beagle, he's, he's pretty useless on his own, let's be honest. He knows one thing, follow your nose. And so the, the search for such animals can be quite artist. I mean, Again, go back, back to our dog. Is Our dog, for some reason, would not respect traffic laws. He didn't come out of our front yard and, and say, okay, I'm going to go left on Butler Street, go to the stop sign, Turn right up Georgetown Road, go two miles, right? That's not the way he thought. He thought, follow your nose. And if you ran into a fence, he'd follow around that fence. He didn't care about private property. And so if you had to go looking for for our, our dog, you go out the front door and you're thinking, How do I know he's not out the back door? Let's just assume it's the front door. Left, right, straight, angle? I don't know. Oh, I mean, you're really just guessing for for a lot of time. So it is with sheep. He loses a sheep. How does he know where to go? The sheep is in danger and he must find it. But find it he must. That leads, of course, to discovery there in verse 5. He he finds the the sheep and there he picks it up and carries it on his shoulders. Again, we're familiar with, with this imagery. The shepherd seeks and saves and carries his lost sheep. Now, The sheep would weigh between 70 and 75 pounds. For the sake of the sheep, he carries that burden upon his shoulders all while rejoicing along the way. And that discovery leads to rejoicing. And then that's, that's the emphasis there, verse 6, isn't it? He comes home, he calls together his friends. These are likely other shepherds. And his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. His personal joy turns to communal joy. He's joined by his other shepherds, friends, his neighbors, his friends, family. It's a cause of celebration. And we need to note here, for the first readers and hearers of the story, there's, there's nothing new. There's nothing bizarre. There's nothing surprising. The unnamed shepherd did exactly what every shepherd in the first century world did. The parallels, however, are clear. Jesus is identifying himself with the shepherd. He seeks loss. He brings them back to the fold. He, therefore, is the good shepherd. And what he wants the Pharisees to do is to see this is the source of God's joy. This is it. But before he can even really have a, 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 a didactic conversation with the Pharisees, he moves quickly to a second parable. Barely breathes. And he starts immediately with the second and this story is, of course, a lost coin. And we follow the same pattern. First, we see what she loses in verse 8. She has ten silver coins. She loses one coin. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until, until she finds it? Now, remember that, that in the first century Roman world, life, uh, people didn't use money the way we use money. I mean, when was the last time you went to Kroger? Um, because the apocalypse sm- is coming, you got to get toilet paper. And... And you go, okay, I'm going to take a wool blanket and three chicken for all the toilet paper you have in the store. We, we don't do that. You take a credit card or a debit card. Sorry, Dave Ramsey. You take cash, right? You take money. But back this time, you, you, you didn't need a lot of money, cash money, in order to, to survive. Because people would bargain supplies or even their own labor for sustenance. But this also means that what little money you do have is very valuable. So to us, it may sound like 10 coins, but if, it's all, if all you have is 10 coins, the loss of 10% of your financial income is significant, wouldn't you say? Of course it is. Now, these coins here are likely a denarius, a, a day's wage. And although it's debatable, it's very possible these coins were, were part of her dowry. Again, Jesus doesn't give us a whole lot, lot of details here, but, but, but a dowry is what was given to you uh, by your father at your wedding day. And that dowry was for the purpose of security. So if your husband died or something happened to your husband, you had something to fall. Upon Right. I mean, we we do this sort of thing with with life insurance. Right. So so maybe you have life insurance so that in the untimely uh, nature of of your death, your family isn't left stranded. If you're the primary breadwinner, that is a way to say if if the unthinkable happens, at least my family can still eat and live. Right. We we, we have something similar today, different system, but still sort of the the same thing. And so to lose 10 percent of her security would be devastating to anyone. And also remember that homes then are not like homes today. The floor is a dirt floor. I don't know if you know much about dirt, but a dirt floor can get quite dusty. And so imagine if you take a dark colored coin, this imagine a penny, and you drop it in the dirt. How hard do you think it is going to be to find that coin? Now, occasionally, I have to wake my, my wife up. Let's say in the middle of the night. So say, say, uh, I need to go use the restroom or check for the burglar or something like that. You know, you know regular father stuff. And I'm reaching over for my glasses because I am, wow, you are looking so much better now. I really can't see a whole lot of, y'all aren't wearing bright colors. Well, Gus, so you're really looking a lot lot better now. But I am, I am blind, right? Uh, if, if you see me without glasses, you had better hope I got my new contacts in. Right, and and occasionally I'm reaching over for my glasses, can't see of the night, and I knock them off. And I know now, you name my glasses to find my glasses. That's a problem. But I can't find my glasses to find my glasses. And I have one fear when that happens, I'm going to put my feet on the ground, on top of my glasses, right? Or if I somehow miss. I'm going to get on my knees to look on on the ground. And what's going to happen? My knees are going to crush my glasses. It's the only way I can see. So so it becomes impossible. Now, I may know the general area where they might be, which they're usually not. It's funny how that happens. But I need my glasses to find my glasses. So I got to elbow her and say, honey, I'm sorry to bother you. I know you're sleeping well, but I can't see. I need to use, use your eyes. So here's a lady. What is she going to do? She goes, I've got a coin. Thankfully, it's not breakable. Wow. Now I can really see. Um, and and she, she, she's going to pull out all the stops. She's going to sweep. She's going to do everything that Joanne Gaines tells her to do in these situations. And she is going to find that coin. So verse 8, I'm glad you all caught that little joke. So the end of verse 8 is, is she seeks it. She, she turns the house over. She turns on the lamp. She, 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 she does it all, right? She does everything that she, she can. And, and then at the end of verse 8, on the verse 9, she, she discovers it. And so she rejoices. And what does she do? She does the same thing that the shepherd does. She gathers her friends, her neighbors, and she rejoices. Again, as I said earlier, the word friends and neighbors here are in the uh, feminine, um, which I know is... Illegal now, but um, or it will be in a few weeks, I'm afraid. Um, But in language, it implies that she's calling up her her gal friends. They're going to celebrate together. No doubt eat chocolate and watch HGTV. No no doubt about it. But she's going to to rejoice. And now notice the picture Jesus has here. On the one end is a shepherd, a lowly shepherd. On the other is an impoverished woman. And what's the story? They lose, they seek, they discover, they rejoice. These are the lowest of the low. Maybe not in moral character, but certainly in class. And in each instance, Jesus has one message. You see it there, don't you? Just so, verse 10, I tell you. There is joy before the angels. Who, who is before the angels? It is God himself. There is joy before the angels over just one of these sinners who would rejoice. What is the source of your joy? You see, the Pharisees understood searching for a lost sheep. They understood the concept of searching for a lost coin. They were appalled at the idea of searching for a lost soul. What is the source of your joy? Jesus told us over and over again, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, it would not be a sin. Rather, it would be a sin for Jesus not to rejoice over the work of the gospel. Because it is the job of the believer for the joy of God to be the joy of his church. That which God rejoices over, let us rejoice. What is the source of your? To the Pharisees, they would point to things like tradition, ritual, religion, power, influence, conformity, influence. But for the followers of Jesus, is it not simply God's joy? That which pleases God, pleases His church. Should it not be the attitude of Christians to rejoice? Is that too simple of an application from this text? Should it not be the attitude of Christians to rejoice? If God and his angels can celebrate your redemption and the redemption of others from heaven, how could we in this life, having been redeemed, ever cease to rejoice? If we can anthropomorphize that sheep who was in danger at risk and is discovered and found by the shepherd is it not rational to see that the joy of that little lamb is tied to the ceaseless joy of his shepherd so too doesn't it make sense that if we have been discovered by god We have been sought out by Christ. We have been been saved by the Savior. Does it not make sense that the joy of God, who is eternal in his essence, should not then an eternal joy in us? Many of y'all know we're going through the book of Acts in our daily devotions. And one passage stuck out to me this past week. It's Acts chapter 16, verse 25. Here here Paul and Silas have been arrested. They are in prison. And Luke makes this little note. He almost just passes over it. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were still were still up. We'll go to bed, sinners, right? Am I right, church folk? <laughs> go to bed, sinners. Past your bedtime. You gotta go work in the morning. But it's about midnight, they're in prison. Why are they in prison? Because for reasons of injustice. Because society despises the good news of Jesus. Might as well get used to this, folks, where we're going. But what what is it that Paul and Silas are doing? Are they calling him their lawyer? No. Are they writing a, a, a formal letter to the, to, to, to the editor? No. Are they going to tweet about it? No. But about midnight, they were praying and they were singing hymns to God. Notice, the response is two things. One, pray that the will of God and the propagation of the gospel may, 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 may still happen despite their circumstances. And secondly, they will, they will sing the joy of God despite their circumstances. And then it says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Well, what a bizarre setting, isn't it? We think we should only pray and sing hymns of God when we are safe and comfortable in our pews. Paul says circumstances do not define and limit joy. Because wherever God may have us, there is our mission field. They rejoice. Their attitude is one of joy, even in prison. We can put it this way. They did not sing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Rather, they sang behind prison bars, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. What? is the source of your joy. Let's pray.